You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, my name is John Horgan. I'm an occasional correspondent for Blogging Heads TV, and this is my own personal show called uh, Mind Body Problems, where we talk about what I think is the deepest mystery of existence, the mind body problem. And um, with me today is um, a British psychologist and author, uh, Steve Taylor, who has a new book that he's going to tell us about. So uh, first of all, welcome, Steve. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you. Uh, So could you just start by giving us a little background on yourself? First of all, where are you now exactly? Uh, I'm in the UK, in Manchester, in England. And um, yeah, I've been involved in psychology for the past uh, 15 years. I did a PhD maybe 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a university lecturer and researcher here in England. And my, my main area is transpersonal psychology. So I specialize in the study of uh, exceptional experiences, which I know you've read about, mm-hmm. uh, higher states of consciousness, spiritual experiences. But what, one of the things I'm really interested in is um, permanent transformation, you know, when people undergo a, a kind of permanent ongoing shift of identity in the way that they see the world and the way that they experience the world. Um, so I've done, I've done quite a lot of research on those experiences, transformational experiences. Okay, so I, I'm curious how you got interested in this topic. So my interest obviously comes from the fact that uh, I'm I'm a child of the '60s. So we were when I was growing up, we were all interested in exceptional experiences, and we sought them oh, yeah. avidly by uh, taking drugs and meditating and doing yoga and all this sorts of stuff. Um, but what led you to be interested in? and these altered states, higher states of awareness, whatever you want to call them? Well, it began with my own experiences. When I was maybe 16 or 17 years old, I started to experience unusual states, which I didn't understand at the time. Uh-huh. I, I struggled to make sense of them. I thought I was crazy. Um, I thought there was something wrong with me. Um, so just to give you a, tip, a typical example, I've got a vivid memory of um, walking in the park when I was maybe 16 or 17 years old. Or I think I used to walk in the park or sometimes in my school fields. I used to go back to my school in the evening and walk around the fields mm-hmm. just to enjoy the, the quietness and the stillness. So in those moments, I would feel a kind of inner well-being. It began with a feeling of inner well-being mm-hmm. uh, in which the kind of turbulence of my mind, my adolescent mind, would temporarily fade away. And everything around me took on a, a, a kind of extra dimension of reality. So the clouds would seem more real, almost as if they were sentient, as if they were sentient beings. And the trees would become almost sentient. They, they would become very vivid, very real. And everything seemed to sort of take on this quality of harmony in all, all of the separate things, the trees, the clouds, the buildings, the fields. They seemed to be somehow connected to each other, part of the same overarching reality yeah and uh, and i felt part of it too my my sense of separation seemed to somehow fade away i didn't it wasn't that i lost my sense of identity but i felt connected it wasn't you know a state of oneness i was still aware of my individuality but i felt as if i was participating you could say in the in the, the natural world that sounds fantastic actually it was great yeah 
So this was a very, would you say it was a blissful experience? You felt really great? Yeah, yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was euphoric because, especially because most of the time I was pretty miserable, you know. Yeah. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I was a typical alienated, depressed adolescent. So in these moments, all of the misery would fade away. And I feel the sense of, ah, everything's okay. You know, there's nothing to worry about. Everything is just fine. Um, so it was a great kind of release from my, you know, the turbulence I experienced the rest of the time. But then did you also feel anxiety after it was over about what was happening to you, whether it might be a symptom of mental illness or what? I mean, what mm. did you do with this experience once, once you'd had yeah. it? Yeah. Well, that was the main problem. Certainly, um, you know, over the next few years, I had a sense that there was something wrong with me, partly because I was having these experiences. Uh, I thought, you know, why, you know, why don't other people talk about these experiences? I didn't dare talk about them because I knew my parents would, would, not, would not understand. Um, I talked about them with one or two friends, but I didn't get much understanding. So I, I began to think there was something wrong with me, and these experiences were part of the evidence that there was something wrong with me. I thought it was maybe some kind of you know, crazy um, misfit, some kind of like, a, you know, the typical misunderstood artist. Mm -hmm. I was writing poetry as well. So I had this kind of romantic image of myself as a doomed figure. So, <laughs> so yeah, so like, I identified with uh, doomed romantic poets and thought there was maybe something wrong with me. Uh -huh. um, but, but years later, I began to understand the experiences. How, what kinds of literature helps you understand? I mean, so this is, this is what led to your interest in psychology, but were there yeah. any authors, scholars, um, I don't know, artists, whatever, who uh, helped yeah. you put your experience in context? Well, there were some poets, um, like Walt Whitman. Yeah. I, I actually studied English literature, English and American literature at university when I was 18. Mm -hmm. And I remember reading Walt Whitman. I thought, ah, wow, this is amazing. You know, I, I understand this guy. And I felt that, you know, he was having, I think his experiences were more intense than mine, but I felt that they were similar experiences. And also um, I read people like William Wordsworth who described similar experiences, mm -hmm. also Shelley, you know. So a lot of um, 19th century poets in England and America had these experiences. I also read uh, Thoreau, I read uh, In Walden Pond by Thoreau. I thought, mm -hmm. yeah, he, he writes about these kinds of experiences, these experiences of feeling in harmony with nature. These, now, these, are, these are what I would call um, nature mystics. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, certainly the nature mystics were really important to me. Um, also D.H. Lawrence, he wrote a lot of kind of nature mystic poetry. Um, and he, he also music. I, I started to listen to Van Morrison and realized that he was singing about these experiences, mm -hmm. yeah, especially in the, he did a series of albums in the 80s, which were all about spirituality and mystical experiences, oneness with nature and so on. And so that was quite, you know, that was quite helpful to me as well. At what point did you become aware that there was a, a scientific discipline, transpersonal psychology, that studied these sorts of states? Well, I was interested in, in um, studies of mysticism. I read quite a few studies of mystical experiences. Mm -hmm. There was a book by F.C. Happold about mysticism, which I read. And I read um, collections of spiritual experiences by Alistair Hardy, collected by Alistair Hardy and people like that, studies of ecstatic experiences. 
But it wasn't until I read um, Ken Wilber in the kind of mid-90s. I was probably, yeah. I was probably in my late 20s at the time. I stumbled on a book by Ken Wilber. And it was the first time I'd heard the term transpersonal psychology. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, this is, this is where I belong. This is what I should be doing. You know, I, I really want to study these experiences in, a, in an academic context. Um, so luckily, I discovered that there was a, a master's degree in transpersonal psychology uh, in Liverpool, which is not far from where I live in Manchester. So I straight away enrolled on this master's degree straight away and realized that, you know, transpersonal psychology was exactly what I was looking for. You know, the study of ecstatic experiences, the study of spiritual or personal transformation. And, you know, looking at the kind of the bridge between Western psychology and, and Eastern philosophy. Um, so it's interesting you mentioned Wilbur. He's somebody, so I wrote a book called Rational Mysticism. They came out about, I don't know, 2003, I think it was published. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was attempting to, because like you, I had experiences like these when I was young, except almost all of them were induced by uh, psychedelic drugs. And, um, and I eventually became so sort of confused and disoriented by them that I tried to put them behind me. That's why I became a science journalist, but then, uh, but I really couldn't get them out of my head and uh, to try to come to terms with them, make sense of them once and for all. I wrote this book when I was well into my career as a science writer, uh, rational mysticism. And I talked to people who I thought had both a sensible intellectual kind of empirical approach to um, mystical experiences and also had some personal experience themselves. So they mm-hmm. were trying to approach it from the, uh, the subjective and objective uh, points of view. And, and one of the people I interviewed for the book, I spent a whole day with them practically was, uh, was Ken Wilber. This must've been oh. in 1999 or mm-hmm. 2000. And uh, it, and I ended up, I sort of liked him and didn't like him at the same time. I liked him mm-hmm. because I thought he was very smart. In some ways, he is very personable, but he was so arrogant. Yeah, uh, yeah. He really presented him as, himself as somebody who has figured everything out. He's figured out reality, yeah. and he had become enlightened himself. He had mm. reached the absolute highest state of awareness. And, uh, you know, so he's telling me this. And, of course, he writes about this in his books. And I felt... You know, he just seemed like a regular, run-of-the-mill, neurotic intellectual, just like I am to me. <laughs> so it made me think that... Maybe, maybe you're enlightened as well. No, that's, that's definitely <laughs> not true. Uh, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the state of enlightenment. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, I don't think you mentioned that term yet. So let, let me just ask mm-hmm. you, do you, what do you think about enlightenment as this kind of supreme state of awareness do you believe in that how do you how do you define it well first of all i i don't i don't like using the term enlightenment i ah. try to avoid it okay because i think i think it's misleading well first of all it's a mistranslation it's a mistranslation of the, the original buddhist term mm-hmm. uh, which is closer to wakefulness or you know the buddha means the awakened one so um actually i i try to use the term wakefulness or awakening to describe the process of becoming enlightened if you use the term enlightenment so but but, yeah one of the reasons why i don't like it is because the 
term enlightenment suggests something very rarefied, very, yeah. something extraordinary, and something final as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, like the end point of the spiritual journey. But in my, in my, in my personal experience, but more importantly in my uh, research, I found that the state of wakefulness, as I prefer to call it, uh, well, for a start, there are, there are lots of degrees. It's a continuum. You know, there are some people who have a, a small degree of wakefulness. There are some people who have a very high degree of, or a very intense degree of wakefulness. And when it happens, it's not really extraordinary at all. In some ways, it's quite ordinary. It's just you're still living in the, in the ordinary world, in the everyday world. But you have a, an, a new experience of the everyday world. And also, the, the term enlightenment suggests you know, images of um, monks who spend decades in solitude or you know, hermits who live in a desert or in the forest. But in, in my research, most of the people I've met or interviewed who've attained this state were actually very ordinary, very ordinary people. Mm-hmm. You, know, you would never guess if you met them on the street that they were awake in some, to some degree. And, you know, they are, you know, they are seemingly ordinary people in the midst of everyday life. So I think the term enlightenment kind of divorces the state from the everyday world, when in fact it's very deeply rooted in the everyday world. Yeah, I, I, uh, I can see why. Maybe, maybe that's a good idea just to get rid of the term enlightenment, except that other people use it so, uh, so often. Um, when you're talking about spirituality and 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 Buddhism um, and some of these other uh, spiritual paths, but uh, but you're you're right that it does seem to imply um, an endpoint. I'm I'm curious how you how you find people who have reached states of awakening or or whatever you want to call it. Well, in my in my research. Most of the people I've encountered who've attained this state, it's usually through intense suffering, intense psychological turmoil. Mm-hmm. So it's often people who've been diagnosed with cancer, um, people who've suffered a bereavement, uh, people who've had a, a life-threatening accident or injury. So it, it often, it's, it's often connected to a close encounter with death. Yeah. Um, and often people in the aftermath of these experiences, they report, you know, that they a kind of shift in identity. They feel like they are different people and they feel like they have a completely new attitude to life, even to the extent that they perceive the world in a different way. You know, the world seems suddenly real to them. Nature, they often report you know, a sense of connection to, to, to nature, which they never had before. Mm-hmm. And they report that trees, flowers, clouds, everything seems to, have taken on an extra dimension of reality. Things are more real and more vivid. People sometimes start writing poetry or start painting because they, they want to sort of convey their heightened experience of reality. So it's almost as if a kind of a veil is slipped aside, a kind of veil of familiarity. And suddenly they're, they're, they're literally awake. They're suddenly living in a different world, a world which is more real. And, and they have a, a tremendous sense of appreciation. You know, they feel appreciative of, uh, of life itself. They feel more appreciative of the people around them. They feel a heightened sense of love to the people around them. They feel more appreciative of nature and so on. Um, so, yeah, in, in my 
research is certainly connected to, you know, it, it usually occurs in the aftermath of intense turmoil. Um, one of the, and, and some of these people, they, they reach this state and then they stay there uh, or they, they remain in, in it on a, on a permanent basis. Yeah, most people do tend to remain in it. I mean, it sort of it fluctuates to a degree, and there are certain problems which sometimes occur. And um, usually, if it, when it occurs very dramatically and suddenly, then it can be quite difficult to to integrate it. Yeah, and it takes a while. It even causes psychological problems sometimes. You know, it can cause problems with memory, with concentration, just because you know, it's a bit like an earthquake. You know, an, an inner earthquake, if you like. So your whole being, your whole organism, your mind and your body undergoes this change. And it takes a long time for it to settle down. It causes some sort of upheaval, some kind of disturbance. Uh, so it can take sometimes years for it to slowly settle down. And sometimes it requires therapy. And it certainly under requires understanding. And sometimes it can be confused with, um, with you know, psychological problems, with a sort of psychosis or even schizophrenia in extreme cases yeah. it can be misdiagnosed as a uh, psychosis one of the one of the issues that i'm really fascinated by um is the degree to which these sorts of experiences make you a better person that they have effects on your i don't know your ethics your morality when i was growing up this idea, I'm, I'm going to stick with the term enlightenment just because that, that's the one I'm still familiar mm -hmm. with. The, the enlightenment, I understood it back in the, you know, this is like late 60s, early 70s. I was reading uh, uh, Baba Ram Das, among others, Baba Ram Das, who just died a couple of weeks yeah. ago. Mm -hmm. um, and the idea was that uh, there definitely was this supreme state of awakening. It could become permanent. And it would uh, make you more compassionate, more empathetic. You feel a connection to other people, to all of nature, uh, really. And you would ha achieve this kind of moral grace. And, you know, I've been sort of tracking the spiritual scene for many decades now. And I'm sure you're aware that, that many of the most prominent gurus and teachers people who purport to be in this higher state of awakening are, t are terrible people. They behave <laughs> really badly. You know, I, I just saw a documentary last night about this guy named uh, Bikram who founded uh, this, you know, extremely popular international uh, <clears throat> yoga school. And, uh, you know, he turned out to be, he was a sexual predator. Mm. Um, this is true of a lot of other teachers as well. They're, you know, they're sort of, they, they prey on mm. uh, their mm. followers. So I just wonder what you, whether you, and I, I think Ken Wilber has written a lot about this. I mean, this is a huge issue within um, the, this whole realm of, of uh, mystical disciplines. Mm. Um, what about the connection, if any, between, this kind of awakening of consciousness and, uh, and moral behavior? Mm. Well, I, uh, I was writing, I wrote an article recently about narcissism in spiritual teachers. Yeah. And I said that uh, if you suffer from narcissistic personality disorder, the best things you can do are become a spiritual teacher or, or a politician. 
They're like <laughs> the ideal occupations. Right. So, I mean, I think a lot of people who become spiritual teachers uh, are very narcissistic. It, it is, yeah. you know, it's the best thing you can do. If you want constant attention, adoration, power, control, that's the, you know, it's the ideal occupation. And, you know, that's not to say that some of these people do not have some insights into enlightenment or spirituality. But a good example is uh, Osho, um, or you call himself the, the Bhagwan Rajneesh. Bhagwan yes. Rajneesh. Great he, documentary was, about him, by the way. Yeah, wild, I saw the documentary on Netflix, yeah. Yeah, Wild Wild something. Yeah, it was really interesting. Yeah. But he was, um, you know, if you read one of his books, he seems very insightful, very wise. He was actually a professor of philosophy um, at, a, at an Indian university, so he's obviously a very clever guy. Yeah. And I'm sure he had some insights into spiritual awakening, but he was obviously also extremely narcissistic. And, you know, his, his narcissism was exacerbated by his role. I think, I think sometimes the role of a spiritual teacher, even if a spiritual teacher does not originally suffer from narcissism, then the role itself encourages narcissism. You know, the, the unthinking adoration, the unquestioning devotion of your followers. You know, anything you do is, um, and even, even when you do bad things, it's some kind of moral test. It's some kind of divine play. You know, yeah. so you, you, in the end, you completely lose your, your sense of morality and you lose your sense of um, identity. So, yeah, I think that's one problem, that the role itself is really, it really exacerbates narcissism. So I think, you know, if you are spiritually awakened to some degree, the worst thing you can do is to become a spiritual teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, I know from, from my research, there are, there are thousands of people who are not spiritual teachers who are spiritually awakened. And they are, um, they are very humble and uh, very, very altruistic. Yeah. Um, may I ask, what, where are you now in your journey? I mean, how do you, have you managed to, sustain that state that you were in when you were just a teenager? Well, um, once I, once I understood my own experiences, then, I mean, one issue I had was that it was quite difficult. I always found it quite difficult to, to live a normal life. I did feel like a misfit for a long time. And I felt as though I had to sort of learn to function in the world somehow. I mean, obviously, you know, we're born in society. We have to learn to function in society to some degree. Um, so I felt as though I had to spend quite a long time integrating my innate spirituality into my being so that I could function. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was really only when I was in my sort of late 20s that I began to live in a way that was kind of harmonious with my spiritual nature. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, I was, I was a musician and I used to smoke and drink and sort of live a kind of crazy musician's life. Uh, but I realized I had to sort of get away from that eventually. And so I started to meditate. I started to do yoga, mm-hmm. became a vegetarian. And when I did that, I felt, I, I felt that my spiritual experiences were beginning to kind of stabilize into some kind of ongoing spiritual state. Um, so I, I do feel that there's this kind of like an ongoing Wakefulness, you could say, not not a, a particularly intense degree, some degree of innate wakefulness which is there, and I'm, I'm trying to sort of uh, preserve it, maintain it, and you know, I'm trying to um, deepen it as well. And I think it's, you know, enlightenment is not a final 
point, there's definitely an ongoing process of deepening and uh, intensifying. It's kind of like an ongoing adventure. And you're you're married and have two kids? Three kids. Three kids. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. And how old are they? Uh, they're, they're 16, 13, and 10. Three boys. Okay. So I have to add So I have two kids who are now they're grown up. They're 26 mm. and 25 now. And uh, my divorce, my, my marriage ended in divorce about uh, 10 years ago. So I, I practically live like a monk now. I'm just curious. Right. You know, you're right in the middle of the maelstrom of the family. <laughs> um, how does that affect your uh, spirit, spiritual practice? Is it a challenge or does it, does it enhance your spirituality? Yeah, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, you, you've obviously been through it yourself. But um, I remember before we had kids, I was living a kind of very quite a reclusive, contemplative life. I was meditating twice a day. I was doing yoga. I was you know, going for walks. I was sort of carefully nurturing my, my inner well-being and stillness and so on. But as soon as you have a, a baby or two, you know, there's like a big explosion in your life. Everything is uh, disrupted. Yes. And uh, it's definitely difficult to get used to because, you know, suddenly there is not much free time. There is not much solitude. Um, suddenly, you know, life is much, challenge, much more challenging. I used to think it was, you, you know, have you ever heard of the spiritual teacher Gurdjieff? Oh, of course. Yeah. He, he used to um, make, one of his goals was to, one of his aims was to, make life really difficult for everybody, everybody around him. He'd sort of wake his followers up at four o'clock in the morning and take them to do some work outside or take them for a run in the snow at three o'clock in the morning. He had this idea that suffering, um, you know, enhances spiritual development. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, having a child is like that. It's like a, <laughs> it's like a sort of ongoing good Jeffian process of, uh, of suffering and challenge. Right. But, but I, I did, I realized after a while that, being a parent is a kind of spiritual path. Um, it involves tremendous levels of self-sacrifice, tremendous levels of altruism, tremendous levels of tolerance and patience. So it, it is, um, you know, I, I think of it now as part of my spiritual development, uh, part of my personal development. I, I, th I see it as, uh, I don't know, I think all... All writers are, you almost have to be a narcissist to think that you have things to say that other people uh, need to hear. And, um, and this might be a narcissistic way to look at family, but I think of, uh, of uh, having a family, having children, especially as a wonderful counterbalance to, uh, to one's uh, natural narcissistic inclinations where you mm. you're, the, you're the center of the world. The world is here for your, yeah. your own spiritual adventure. But, oh, you know, here are these other people. They've got their own yeah. thing going on. And mm. they're the most important thing in your life in certain ways. Yeah, exactly. So I think it is, um, you know, it is a balancing process. And I, th I think in the end it has done, it has done me a lot of good because I was, uh, I mean, another thing was I was very impractical. I was very kind of otherworldly you know, lacking in common sense and practical skills. But, you know, I, I feel like I've been on a, you know, 16 year long journey of practicality and um, organization. So yeah, I think it's definitely brought about some kind of integration, you know, within my personality. Um, congratulations. Maybe Ken Wilber would have been a better, uh, 
a better teacher if he'd had kids at some point. Yeah, it's um, a good point, actually. Mm. So I, I you know, we're, we've almost talked for a half an hour already. I want to uh, now turn to your new book. I'm holding it up here for the audience, uh, Spiritual Science, because there's this whole other dimension of your uh, of your career, your work, that uh, I wanted to get into. Um, so, and this is just one of many books. This is your, what, fourth? Uh, that's book? my 11th book. Oh, my God, 11th book. Okay. <laughs> Make me feel <laughs> how, many, like uh, how, many, how many books have you written? Not nearly that many. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've re- I think I've had five published, one, one I self-published. And right. I've got another one coming out uh, next fall. So I, I admire your productivity. But I wonder if you can, uh, you can tell us briefly what this book is about, and then we'll get into some of the details. Mm. Well, partly it's a critique of materialism. Yeah. Um, you know, or scientism, as you could call it, kind of the belief system, which is traditionally aligned with contemporary science. Mm-hmm. So it's always seemed to me that materialism is taken for granted by large sections of the population, certainly by the, you know, in academia, it's largely taken for granted. Um, also by the, by the serious intelligent media, uh, certainly in the UK, I presume, I think in the US as well. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they take it for granted that materialism is the only real way to explain human experience and to explain the world. But I've always felt that materialism was deficient in some ways. And, you know, know, there are many things which materialism can't explain very well at all. Consciousness is one thing. You know, we know about the hard problem in consciousness studies and um, the difficulties of explaining conscious experience in terms of neurological activity. Um, And also something like um, the effects, the profound effects of mental intention on the body. Mm-hmm. which is sometimes experienced in the placebo effect or in, under hypnosis. You know, in hypnosis, sometimes mental intentions or instructions from a hypnotist can bring about sig- significant changes to neurological functioning or to the functioning of the body. Even healing can sometimes take place in those situations. Certainly, you know, the, um, the numbing of pain can occur. So, you know, if, if materialism suggests that that conscious experience is a kind of shadow of brain activity. Mm-hmm. It suggests that uh, the mind is an epiphenomenon of the brain. So if, if that's true, then the mind should not really be able to have a profound effect on the matter of the body or on the brain, of, brain itself. So that doesn't make sense. Also, something about altruism, I've always felt that materialist attempts, and, uh, attempts to explain altruism are very questionable. There are many kind of convoluted, complex attempts to explain altruism in neo-Darwinian terms and so on. And then you move on to a whole series of anomalous phenomena, like near-death experiences, spiritual experiences, which we've talked about already, and other kinds of anomalous experiences, which materialists tend to sort of disregard or explain away because they don't make sense in materialist terms. So partly in my book, I was trying to critique materialism and show that it doesn't explain the world at all very well. And we need some kind of alternative to materialism if you want to explain the world. All right. I, I, I don't know how much you know about, about my background, but I tend to be, uh, I guess, 
people often call me a contrarian. I, I think of myself as being a model of common sense. Uh, but people call me a contrarian, and I, and, and I guess that might be because I find myself in the position of pushing back. If I'm with materialists, I, I find myself pushing back against materialism. If I'm with anti-materialists, I find myself pushing back against them. Uh, so, um, first of all, is, is your stance about materialism, I assume it's related to these experiences that you were just talking about, to this awakening experience? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and to what you've learned about other people's experiences. Do you think that these experiences are, that they provide some kind of evidence uh, mm-hmm. that, I don't know, mind is primary? Do you, have you ever felt that way yourself? That, that, you know, there's something beneath matter that's more fundamental, whether it's mind or something else? Yeah, I mean, certainly in my own experiences, the kind of experiences I was describing before, I had this sense that, and I still get it now when I have those experiences, this sense that separation does not really exist, that the, um, you know, the idea that there are separate, distinct objects out there, uh, which exist in space in separation from one another, one another, that that's not really the case. I often had the sense that there is something more fundamental which connects those things together almost as if they are expressions of something uh something more fundamental right it's difficult it's very difficult to describe but it was almost like um they were just manifestations of something more fundamental they were expressions they were emanating from something more fundamental and there's really something more fundamental which brought them into oneness so i think i think the overriding um the overriding um, principle of these experiences was oneness mm-hmm. and that oneness has to have some kind of source and so that does suggest something more fundamental and and you've actually proposed uh, a, a metaphysics that would um, that uh, identifies something that could be the most fundamental property of existence below even the minds that we're using right now below the, the realm of matter. This is uh, pen, pen spiritism. I wonder if you could That's explain, right. explain what that is. Well, it's, um, it's an alternative to panpsychism. Um, panpsychism literally means mind is everywhere mm-hmm. or mind is all. But really just panpsychism just means that mind is within material particles. It means that, Mind is a quality or maybe an intrinsic property of material particles. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't suggest that, you know, that mind or something or spirit exists in space itself. It's just in particles. So that doesn't, that doesn't really capture the kind of um, the experiential nature of my own experiences or of mystical experiences. Mm-hmm. Mystical experiences seem to suggest that spirit or mind is everywhere. It's not just in matter, it's actually in space. And it's actually more fundamental than matter. It's sort of matter somehow emanates from this underlying spirit or underlying mind. So, so panpsychism is not the right term for the kind of philosophy I wanted to present. So panspiritism uh, literally means everything is spirit. 
well, I sometimes call it fundamental consciousness because mm-hmm. I see it as a source of our own consciousness. I see our individual consciousness as an expression of this underlying fundamental consciousness, which is kind of transmitted into us through the brain. And it's actually, it's actually very similar to, I mean, there's, there's a chapter in my book where I talk about indigenous conceptions of the universe. Mm-hmm. I talk about Native American conceptions of the great mystery and many indigenous peoples in the, around the world had similar conceptions that there was some kind of universal spirit, which, which was in everything, which gave rise to the material world. And it also explains, um, in a, in a, often in mystical experiences, there, are, there is a strong sense of compassion, a strong sense of love towards other human beings or towards the world in general. And I think that kind of compassion is also an expression of the fundamental oneness of living beings. I don't think you can explain that compassion or love except in terms of some kind of underlying shared consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, sorry, I feel like I feel a sneeze coming on. Um, That's fine. <laughs> I think, I think it's passing. Um, I, you know, it's, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to, uh, talk to you is that um, I just attended a meeting at this spiritual retreat center in California called Esalen, uh, which explored, I think it's fair to say, non-materialist um, philosophies or systems for explaining everything and explaining their relationship between, uh, between mind and matter. And it brought out the contrarian in me. And, um, and so I, I ended up writing a blog post critiquing some of the ideas that were bandied about at the meeting. And I'll just give you a couple of them and see mm-hmm. how you respond to them. One, of, one is, um, it's, a, it's a concept that I call neo-geocentrism. Mm. Uh, it refers to, um, it, it's an allusion, of course, to geocentrism, uh, this idea that most humans had for most of human history or for as long as we actually thought about our place uh, in the universe, it's the idea that we're, we're the center of things, Mm. both physically and, and uh, metaphorically. So earth is the center of the universe. Everything revolves around us. And also this universe was created for our benefit by Mm. God. And uh, then, of course, we had um, Galileo and all these other great scientists who uh, helped us understand that, no, the Earth is just this one little piece of rock rotating around this one star that turns out to be an unexceptional uh, star and just one of many galaxies. So we've gradually been displaced from the center of the universe. This is sort of the, the course of modern science. And I see this as one of the great achievements of humanity mm. uh, because our, our coming back to narcissism, it's our narcissism that makes us think that everything is about us. Um, I mean, yeah. each individual person is at the center of his or her own universe. And so through our intellects, we helped to, um, uh, we helped ourselves to understand that no, we're you know we're that um, 
there's all this other stuff going on out there that has nothing to do with us. We're just one of many species that happen mm. to be created through this random process. So the rational part of me, of me sees these new, all these new philosophies, and you're right, there are lots of them now, all these new philosophies that say that mind is somehow essential for existence, I see them as kind of a return to this old narcissistic, this mm. way we had it uh, uh, looking at the universe. And um, even though I've had these intuitions that you're talking about myself, that consciousness is primary. As mm. I say, that the rational kind of skeptical part of me worries about this drift toward um, non-materialism. So I just, yeah. any thoughts about that? Mm. Well, I, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's um, especially an issue with, well, potentially an issue with idealist approaches. You know, there are some kind of, um, when you can, do, you can divide idealism into realist idealism and anti-realist idealism. So anti-realist uh, idealism, and a good example would be uh, Indian Vedanta philosophy or Advaita philosophy in particular. It suggests that the world is an illusion created by your mind. I know it's literally a dream. It's you know, all the contents of your mind are dreamlike. The world itself is, is dreamlike. It's a projection on the, you know, on, on spirit itself, mm -hmm. just like images on a cinema screen. So I think that kind of, that kind of anti-realist idealism is quite dangerous. You know, you end up thinking that everything is illusion. No, nothing really matters. It's all an illusion. It doesn't really matter that, um, you know, I commit crimes or, that I'm, um, you know, a horrible person. It's all just illusory. Who cares? I think that's that's quite dangerous. So I think seeing the the material world as insubstantial is quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. There are there are lots of realist idealist approaches which see the world as a kind of emanation of spirit. You know, it's real, but it's kind of it's an emanation. It's an expression of spirit, and that's better because it does, you know, suggest that the world is real. It's substantial. But I think even in those cases, there's a, there's a danger of the kind of narcissism you talk about. Like, you know, everything is in my mind. Everything is in mind itself. And in some sense, you are seeing yourself as a center of the universe. But I think, I think one of the things I wanted to do with panspiritism was to move away slightly from, from idealism mm -hmm. and suggest that the world does have its own reality. It's not insubstantial. It's not just a a vibration or an excitation of mind or spirit. I think the, the world is a production of fundamental consciousness, but it has its own reality. You know, it's like a, um, the way that rain is produced by clouds or sparks are produced by fire, children are produced by parents. It's, you know, it's a production, but it has its own being, its own reality. Mm -hmm. So I think the world is, you know, real in itself. And it can't just, it can't be entirely reduced to mind or spirit. It's pervaded with mind or spirit, but it's not entirely entirely reduced to mind or spirit. So I think that takes away some of the danger of narcissism. But I think I think I also think that when spiritual spiritual experiences are intense, they they also reduce narcissism. They make you realize that you are your individual personality does not really exist. You know that your deepest being is something impersonal, something beyond the ego, if you like. So mm -hmm. you realize that all the machinations of your ego, all of your beliefs and ambitions and desires, 
they're, you know, they're quite trivial. And you, know, you become rooted in something more impersonal. And also you feel a strong sense of compassion and empathy for other human beings, which takes away uh, your narcissism too. You, you should really, in genuine spiritual experiences, move beyond self-centeredness. Um, how is pan-spiritism different from, or the spirit within pan-spiritism different from God? It, it seems to me, mm. the reason I ask this is because you also have a section in your book where you you talk about the purpose of the universe. You do think there's a purpose. The purpose is for, is to for us to feel this connection with each other, and um, and to feel this deeper sense of uh, compassion and uh, love. I mean, this is a this is a fairly this is a pretty uh, uh, old idea uh, that sort of spirit as love is the basis uh, of everything. And it seems to me pretty close to the idea of a loving Christian God or a loving Jewish God or, or Muslim Ooh. God. Um, and it brings up the, in my mind, the old questions about the problem of evil, which Ooh. is, you know, yeah. if there's this loving spirit that wants good things for us uh, underlying everything that, that might be the sort of creative principle of the mm. universe, then why is why is life so fucking horrible for so many people? <laughs> I mean, you and I are pretty lucky. Oh yeah. Academics, you've got a nice family. Uh, you know, my kids are doing okay. We're mm. pretty affluent. Um, we've got books published. Yeah. Uh, but for most of for so many people around the world, there's no justice, there's no peace, there's there's just a life of suffering and then they die. So how yeah. can spirit permit this? Well, one thing is that spirit, as I conceive it, is not loving in itself. I think the, the, the human experience of love is basically an experience of connection, an experience of oneness. So when we have encounters with spirits in spiritual experiences, maybe in a deep state of meditation, we feel a profound sense of oneness a profound sense of oneness with spirit itself and also with all of the other beings which are manifestations of spirit, other human beings, other animals, or with the whole of the natural world. So we, we interpret that as a, a feeling of love. It's a sense of oneness, but it's ecstatic. We transcend all of the problems of being an individual. So it feels like love, but I don't think love is an innate quality of spirit itself. Mm. I think we associate it with love. I think spirit is basically impersonal. It's, it's neutral. It's, um, it's a kind of dynamic field. It's like a, it's difficult to describe, but I see it as a kind of a dynamic field which has um, a kind of creative potential. I think it gives birth to material particles. Mm-hmm. You know, we're move, maybe moving into the realm of quantum physics, which is quite sort of tricky and controversial. But I think fundamental consciousness does have this kind of dynamic potential. It gives birth to material particles, which then become, because there's this kind of inherent creative potential, these material particles begin to collect together to organize themselves, to create more complex structures. And eventually that leads to living beings, simple cells, uh, the simplest life forms. And then we move into the realms of evolution, biological evolution, where living beings become more complex, cells group together 
they take on different functions. And eventually, you know, we end up with human beings and whales and dolphins and other very incredibly complex creatures. But yeah, so there, there is a purpose in a way, but it's, it's not really, you couldn't really describe it as purpose. It's more like a direction. It's a direction towards increasing complexity, but also towards increasing consciousness, increasing awareness, increasing sentience. You know, the, the flip side of physical complexity is inner sentience. The more physical complexity there is in life forms, the more sentience, the more consciousness they have. So that's the direction. The direction is towards increasing, well, let's say it's an expansion of consciousness, an expansion and an intensification of consciousness. And, but that, yeah, that doesn't really take account of the problem of evil. I think the problem of evil becomes, arises because um, you know, we become alienated from our you know, fundamental nature, our <laughs> fundamental oneness. We all have moments of altruism from time to time where we feel oneness with other human beings. But a lot of the time we're in a mode of selfishness. A lot of human beings live in this kind of prison of self-centered thoughts and self-centered desires. And then maybe if they feel altruism, it's towards the people closest to them. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, so we have undergone this, um, this alienation, if you like, this alienation from our kind of shared essential consciousness. Now, I, I haven't read it, but um, I, I've seen you, uh, I've read some of your um, descriptions of a previous book, I think called The Fall. Yeah. And uh, maybe you could talk about that. My, I, I'm guessing that you're, you're saying that there was a period in human prehistory when um, we were not alienated from nature and from each other. Mm. Uh, that we had a pretty harmonious, integrated uh, existence with each other and, and with the rest of the world. And then, um, I don't know, agriculture and civilization and nation states and all the rest uh, mm. happened. And, and we find ourselves um, being sort of disconnected from things. Is, yeah. that, is that what that book was about? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, um Part of it was analyzing myths around the world. In, in the sort of Christian world, we have the myth of the fall. In other cultures, there are similar myths. Um, in China, we have the myths of a, a fall from harmony. In Rome, it was the golden age, the fall from the golden age. So every culture is a myth of a fall from a kind of um, a prehistoric age of harmony. So I, I, part, part of my book was examining archaeological evidence and anthropological evidence that there was a time in prehistory when human beings were, were largely free of warfare, mm-hmm. which I know you've read about that too. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, the, the case for that is overwhelming. You know, you, you, put, you put forward a really good argument in your book, The End of War. And I think now the evidence for a period of prehistoric peace was, is pretty strong. And I think even mainstream anthropologists now accept, a lot of mainstream psycho, uh, sorry, anthropologists now accept that. But that was just one part of it. There was also a lack of hierarchy in societies, a lack of male domination. Mm -hmm. And you can see it reflected in some contemporary hunter-gatherer groups who are also very egalitarian. Um, Obviously, there are some hunter-gatherer groups who are are quite aggressive and hierarchical. But the hunter-gatherer groups who live in the same way as our earliest ancestors, a very kind of simple way of life where they consume food straight away rather than storing it, they, they are very egalitarian. 
and usually quite peaceful as well. So there does seem to be a, t a point in prehistory when things began to go wrong. Do you think we can... You really do strike me as a very 60s kind of person, I must say. And I mean that as a compliment. Good, good. Because this, this idea of, of, let's say, I don't know, Native Americans and, uh, and other pri tribal people uh, living in a sort of state of grace was very popular also uh, when I was growing up. I, um, I, you know, I, I do think that some uh, claims about the the violence of uh, of hunter gatherers uh, back in the Paleolithic are grossly uh, overstated. But uh, but let me just ask you: Do you think that? Well, two part question. These are huge questions. I'm sorry to lay this on you. First of all, do you think that humans are essentially good and we're kind of ruined by modern life? And second. Mm -hmm. If so, can we recapture, can we rediscover our essential goodness in the modern era? Hmm. Well, yeah, I, well, I, I certainly think that the, the negative sides of human nature have been grossly exaggerated, mm -hmm. particularly with the, the popularity of fields like evolutionary psychology, which kind of assumed that human beings must always have been in a state of warfare because we are naturally um, aggressive and competitive and we're naturally hostile towards other groups. But, I mean, but one thing you have to remember is that um, 10,000 years ago, 15,000 years ago, the population of the world was tiny. You know, the population of Europe was in the tens of thousands mm -hmm. 15,000 years ago. So there's so much territory to go around that it's very unlikely that groups would have needed to fight with each other over territory. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's very unlikely that groups actually had to fight hard to survive. It's, it's unlikely that they had to struggle to survive. So life was probably fairly easy in those days. You know, there was lots of fruit, lots of nuts and berries and so forth to collect for people, lots of animals for people to hunt. And that's why contemporary anthropologists sometimes say that, you know, um, early human beings probably only needed to work for three or four hours a day. They need to hunt for three or four hours a day. The rest of the time was leisure time. Um, and so in those, in those conditions, there was really no need for people to become competitive um, or hostile towards other groups. And in actual fact, hunter-gatherer groups have been shown to be very collaborative, not just within their own groups, but with other groups as well. They mm -hmm. often form ties with other groups. They often intermarry with other groups. So the idea that they actually fight with other groups for, over access to, to food sources or sources of water, or whatever. You know, I think it's nonsensical. There's no, it's just a basic assumption that comes from the, the principles of evolutionary psychology. So I think, you know, the, the collaborative, altruistic aspects of human nature actually have a very sound evolutionary basis. Mm -hmm. You know, they're probably more of a basis than the so-called selfish or competitive aspects of human nature. So I think we're a combination of both of those traits. I think, unfortunately, in modern life, the competitive aspects um, have become emphasized and mm -hmm. have become stronger. But I think the altruism and collaboration is still there. It is still very strong in us. It often comes over in, uh, in crisis situations. In crisis situations, people become extremely altruistic. And they feel this intense sense of empathy with one another. 
But when we pursue our, own, our sort of normal concerns in normal everyday life, then we, try, we tend to plow our own furrows and live in isolation from one another. So sometimes it takes some kind of crisis for us to, for our kind of innate altruism to manifest itself. And then, you know, going back, going to the second part of your question, I think that um, as we're now living in a time of global crisis, particularly in terms of climate change or climate crisis, then I mean, and I think and, and hope that these kind of, you know, the altruistic, unselfish aspects of human nature will come to the fore again. I think maybe the collaborative, altruistic aspects will, well, they'll certainly need to be um, cultivated if we're going to face this crisis and if we're going to overcome this crisis. I think maybe it's happening already. Maybe there is a new spirit of collaboration in amongst all of the, the greed and selfishness and nationalism. I think there's an opposing kind of spirit of collaboration and altruism forming as well. Uh, what, what makes you say that? Can you give me, because I'm desperate for hope. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, I, I feel as though I have a responsibility as a writer, as a teacher, as a parent to, to have an upbeat view of the world uh, but I am often criticized for being a ridiculous, sentimental, old hippie. And uh, maybe I am, but I'm always looking for reasons to be more hopeful. So anything you've got, I would much appreciate. Hmm. Well, two things, really. One is my kind of subjective impression of the students I teach, because I'm, I'm a university lecturer. I see hundreds of students every year. I think the young people, you know, they, I've been in a lecture for over 10 years now. Mm-hmm. I think the young people are becoming more socially aware, more ecologically aware. That's a superficial impression, but it's a feeling I get from interacting with my students. They yeah. feel a sense of urgency, a sense that something needs to be done. Mm-hmm. That they seem to be becoming more politically active, less, more socially conscious, more environmentally conscious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I've, I've sensed that in my students as well. Yeah, you can see it in uh, Greta Thunberg. She's like the, the epitome of this, the 16-year-old environmental, 17-year-old environmental activist. Yeah. She's the figurehead of this movement. But, you know, the young people have always been idealistic and liberal compared to older people, liberal in the kind of um, the left-wing sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's growing stronger now, certainly compared to when I was a, a teenager. People just seem to care about you know, having a good time and getting drunk and getting off with girls and so on. But now there seems to be this, this intensifying spirit of activism, you could say. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. But also on a, on a more sort of philosophical basis, um, in my research, um, I feel that my feeling is that, you know, spirit, the kind of spiritual experiences we're talking about and uh, the kind of experiences of, of personal transformation where people shift into a different way of seeing the world. I'm constantly amazed at the number of experiences which uh, I collect, or, you know, or the experiences I, I become aware of, particularly in terms of um, transformation that follows psychological turmoil. Mm-hmm. You know, I've interviewed hundreds of people who've undergone this change following a diagnosis of cancer or some kind of upheaval. Sometimes it's uh, in the aftermath of alcoholism. Um, or a recovery from alcoholism. But it seems to be you know, surprisingly common. You know, I, was never, I never suspected it to be so common, but and often you're not really aware of these people because they don't become spiritual teachers. They don't write books. 
They don't usually even broadcast their experiences on the internet. They're often quite kind of self-effacing, quite humble, quite anonymous. So I do sense that there are a lot of people out there who've had these experiences. And there was, there was actually research suggesting that spiritual experiences are becoming, becoming more common over the last 30, 40 years. Um, even if, you know, simple, a simple survey when you, when you ask people if they've experienced a sense of oneness with nature or mm-hmm. oneness with the cosmos, a significantly, more, a significantly higher number of people will say yes than they did 20 or 30 years ago in those surveys. So, you know, who knows what's really going on, but I have a feeling that spiritual experiences are becoming more accessible. Maybe, you know, people are becoming more aware of them too. Awareness always helps. Understanding always helps. Maybe now that there's more understanding of these experiences, they, they're becoming more common. But, you know, but when you have these experiences, you do generally become more, you, have a, you attain more of a global outlook. You kind of expand beyond your self-centered world. And you generally become more altruistic as well, more compassionate. So I think it does lead to, you know, the same kind of thing we were talking about earlier, kind of mm, a kind of uh, a concern for the world and a desire to make things better. So, yeah, that, that's partly why I'm optimistic. And yet you just had over there um, another pro-Brexit vo- vote, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and it, it, I think I'll, a lot of people over here think that Trump is probably going to be reelected in, in spite mm-hmm. of all, all his, uh, his divisiveness mm. and, uh, volatility. And, uh, so, um, I mean, maybe this is the pessimist in me, uh, in me talking. I, the way I, I try to convince myself that things are getting better is that, Right now, the great democracies in the world are going through uh, these terrible challenges and that they will, these are sort of like assaults on our immune system, our political immune system, and we will emerge from these assaults uh, stronger and uh, better equipped to withstand uh, challenges in the future. And if nothing else, we're realizing right now how much we have to lose. Uh, you know, the, the, the great democracies, uh, yours and and uh, and mine here in the U.S., um, we've kind of gotten complacent, I think. And yeah. um, and now uh, there are people here who are worried about the the future of of uh, of the nation, whether you know whether there might be war in our future. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I think maybe. This could be something similar to the psychological turmoil that uh, precedes these states of heightened awareness that that uh, yeah. you yourself and that other people have gone through. Mm. That, that's about as positive a way I can spin all this. Well, thing. yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, the, the biggest single um, trigger of transformation, which I've come across in my research, is an encounter with death. It can change everything, you know, an encounter with death through cancer through an accident or an injury, your whole life suddenly becomes reevaluated. And um, in, in extreme cases, people feel as though they've taken a new identity and they're a different person living in the same body. Obviously, it doesn't always happen, but in a certain number of cases, it happens. And I think as a species, we are facing potential extinction, you know, in the worst case scenario. 
So that, you know, my hope is that that is having or will have some kind of transformational effect. So the, the individual transformational effect will be mirrored by the collective transformational effect. I think that is happening to some degree. And there's obviously a re- reaction against it. You know, the, the old, the kind of patriarchal traits in the human race, the authoritarian traits, they seem to be re-emerging. You know, those traits lead to nationalism, to separation, to war, male domination, and so on. Yeah, it's strange that those characteristics do seem to have re-emerged in the last 10 years, but I think it's because the people who hold those values feel threatened because there's this rising tide of egalitarianism towards a more awakened vision of the world. I think there's a certain degree of threat, you know, and nothing strengthens people more than threat. So threat can make people rigid and strong again. And I think that's probably what's happening, that the old patriarchal characteristics are feeling threatened and therefore they're becoming more rigid. Yeah, but but we're we're going to overcome that. Well, I hope so. And it's, it's going to be uh, it's going to be tight over the next few decades. But um, it goes back to evolution. I've, I've talked to earlier about this um, how evolution in its inner dimension is characterized by an intensification and an expansion of consciousness. So the same thing happened is happening now collectively. You know, I think. Maybe the internet has something to do with this. Maybe the internet is having an interconnecting influence. And maybe the human race is becoming more interconnected. And perhaps that will manifest itself in some kind of intensification in consciousness. Mm-hmm. You know, some kind of intensified compassion and altruism. And, and again, that would, that would be one of the reasons why the old patriarchal values feel threatened because of this rising interconnection. So I think as the world does become increasingly interconnected, this intensified consciousness will hopefully manifest itself. Yeah, um, I hope you're right. Uh, I think that's a good. I think that's a good place to end. We've been talking for about an hour now. Um, okay. So uh, thanks a lot, Steve. Um, Thank you. I feel like you've you've given me. Uh, I don't know. You've given me a booster of optimism, and uh, and I, I needed it. <laughs> Things are a little dark over here. It's actually a beautiful day. It's it's really warm and sunny today, but it's so warm that it's a little freaky. It's it's going to be about fifty mm. degrees Fahrenheit today, and that's yeah. just not normal for January in uh, in New York City. So it's a beautiful day, but I feel like it's you know it's a symptom of global warming. Yeah, uh, same here in the UK. We've had a very mild winter so far. Yeah, the temperature has not gone beyond zero, which is very unusual. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm going to try to figure out how to save this and, uh, and, uh, get it sent off to, uh, blogging heads TV. Uh, so thanks again. Uh, I, I really enjoyed talking to you. I, I enjoyed, uh, reading your book. Um, at some point you might want to just send me, I don't know, any links that you think are relevant to this conversation. I know you've mm-hmm. got a website with a lot of your writings on it. Uh, so so definitely send that. Anything else that you want to draw attention to that's related to our conversation, send it okay. to me and I'll, I'll pass it on to uh, the people who put all this together. Right. Okay. Brilliant. Yeah. So it's great to connect with you because I read your book, The End of Science, 20 years ago. Yeah. And I really liked it. Thank you. And yeah. And um, about five years ago, I read The End of War. 
Yeah. And I love that because it was, um, it was, you know, reaffirmation of many of my own views about warfare. So it was great to read that too. Well, so yeah, it's been great to connect with you. Well, the, the end of science was a very pessimistic book and I always felt a little bad about it. So I mm. wanted to write a really optimistic book as kind of penance. And so that's where the end of war came from. Right. What, what kind of reaction did you get to that book? Were, were people oh, skeptical? Depressingly little. I mean, most people, you know, I teach a course in it uh, every year. And um, most of my students, that, you know, I, I do my best to brainwash them. And most of them are still extremely skeptical. The, vast, the reason I wrote the book is because most people think that war will never end. And mm. uh, I, unfortunately, I haven't changed many minds. But I'm right. still hoping, actually, that there will be uh, – that some brilliant politician will recognize that ending war is absolutely essential, that, that it's a moral necessity, sort of like ending slavery or, or granting equality to, uh, to women, and we'll also see it as a practical issue, that we're wasting all this mm. energy and money on, uh, on warfare and preparations for war that could be – going to solve other problems. Yeah, um, yeah. It's funny though, last year I was invited to a, a debate in a science festival here in the UK. The, the debate was, is war inevitable? Huh. And I assumed I was going to get a hard time from evolutionary psychologists, but there were two other people there. One was a, an anthropologist, and there was also some kind of peace activist. And they all agreed that war is not inevitable. I was surprised at the, uh, the agreement. We all agree that because war has not always existed, there's no reason why it should always, well, sorry, there's no reason why it should always exist. Right. But how, did you get any sense of whether the audience was with you? Yeah, they were actually, I was surprised. Yeah, they they were actually with us. So so I feel that, um, you know, there's more openness now than there was. I published the book The Fall 15 years ago and I I got a bit of a hard time. People said I was kind of being naive and, and romantic. Right, but I think it's it's changed a little bit over the past few years. I'll have Maybe. to get, I'll have to get your book. I I should have been aware of that when I was doing the research for uh, the end of war. Yeah, yeah. Well, I read it fifteen years ago. There are a few things that would change now, but I still, you know, I still stand by most of it. Yeah, I I wrote the end of war during the Obama years, and um, it would have been a very different book if I was writing it now. I'm, yeah, yeah. It's, you know, the outlook is pretty, things are bad here in the States. Yeah, I'm always amazed when I see Donald Trump's approval ratings. It's like 45, I think. How can 45% people, people approve yeah. of him? It doesn't make if, any sense. If you, if you believe, as I try to, in the essential decency and intelligence of humans, um, the Donald Trump phenomenon is, uh, is very difficult to explain. Mm. as is Boris Johnson and, and all these yeah. other sort of strong men who have emerged around the, the world who are very popular, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've actually been writing about these issues recently and uh, I came upon this concept called pathocracy, which was a car. Have you heard of that before? No, I haven't. It's a great term. Yeah. It was, it was devised by a Polish psychologist who'd grown up under Hitler and then Stalin. Yeah. Um, so he wanted to understand why so many politicians appear to be psychopaths or narcissists. So he came up with this term pathocracy, which is when a government is taken over by, by people with personality disorders. Right. 
and it's you know it's depressingly common but the strange thing is that psychopaths and narcissists also are quite charismatic so they are appealing to the mass of kind of uninformed people they yeah. have this kind of basic charismatic appeal and i think that's probably what ha- what's happening what's happening in america with um with trump he's you know he's a charismatic guy and his narcissism makes him kind of single-minded and um even decisive because he he's not you know willing to consider different possibilities so he has this illusion of being a strongman ruler you know a decisive strongman ruler just like hitler hitler was appealing to the German population for the same reasons. There's something about, there's something frightening about uh, the ability of people with absolute self-confidence to also win the confidence of, uh, of others. I, I think that doubt and humility are essential traits. Uh, mm. There are liabilities for Impulse. people, for leaders. Mm. Um, so that's to me that's a very deep rooted problem in uh in the world today. Yeah, as I suggested in my article I wrote about this is that um I was actually it was published in Psychology Today in America um last month. But I suggested that there should be some psychological assessments and evaluations for all politicians. <laughs> particularly in terms of levels of empathy, right. levels of narcissism. Uh but you know that would be great but um I don't think it's going to happen. Do you know uh, Do you know Kevin Dutton by any chance? No. He's a British psychologist. I think he was at Oxford for a while. I'm not sure where he is now, but he's written some popular books on, uh, on uh, psychopaths. One is called, I think, The Wisdom of Psychopaths. It's about uh-huh. how actually psychopathic traits can be really good for you. They can, uh, they can help you become a success in lots of different fields. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, and um, and he's he's gotten uh, so he's almost encouraging people to try to cultivate these traits in themselves. Yeah, but that's only because our culture values those traits. You know, if we valued fairness, humility, egalitarianism, and so forth, if we valued those traits more, then psychopaths would not be successful. Yes, now psychopaths are not as successful in Scandinavian countries, for example, because they have cultures of egalitarianism. Apparently, yeah. in Sweden, this a friend of mine who's from Sweden was saying that in Sweden, there's such a sort of culture of humility that if you have any success, you're not allowed to talk about it. You know, <laughs> anybody who talks about success is um, sort of ostracized or ignored or seen as a an arrogant person. I've heard that, and I've actually met some Norwegians who um, had that kind of humility, and I don't think of myself as that arrogant uh but i felt like an arrogant blowhard when i'm hanging around with right. some of these noble norwegians yeah so hmm, you know it's, it's largely it's largely cultural the yeah. success of psychopaths it's because we have you can say we have a psychopathic culture to some degree yes because we place such a high value on competitiveness and getting on and so forth Yep, we need a new age of Aquarius, sir. Yeah. Well, so when I send you when I send you some links, I'll send you a link to my article about pathocracy. That'd be great. Concept. Okay, thanks, Steve. You can sign off anytime. I'm, I've got to try okay. to make sure I save this recording in the proper way. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks a lot, John. I enjoyed, I enjoyed that discussion. It was great. Thank you. Yeah, me too. All right. Okay. Well. All, all the best. Bye-bye.